Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And uh, as always, we're highly grateful to Harbro for their sponsorship of the Top Lines and Tales podcast. This week, we're continuing with our series on characters in livestock. I have on the podcast this week not only a great Texel sheep breeder, but a well-known face and a great stalwart for the UK's sheep industry and a tremendous character, Jimmy Warnock, MBE. Jimmy, welcome to Top Lines and Tales. Thank you very much, Andy. Delighted to be here. And Jimmy, we go back to, I've got records back that you started uh, the Watch Now Flock in 1974, which of course is the beginning of the the, the Texel's importation. But uh, where were you before that, Jimmy? How did you get to, to be at, at Sandylands? Right. Um, well, to go right back to the very beginning, um, we were farming a dairy farm down at Glen Mavis, which is now skirts of Airdrie in Lanarkshire, North Lanarkshire. And we got the opportunity to take the tenancy of Sandilands Farm in 1946. So we moved up here. But I, I might say at this stage that I was just six months old when we moved here, <laughs> just in case people think I'm older. Uh, I'm sure and, they were. Um, uh, yeah. We moved in here, and this was a Clydesdale uh, farm, and one of the top Clydesdale studs okay. was here at Sandilands. So my father set about changing all the Clydesdales to um, a dairy, uh, a Vershire cows. We had a buyer of 55 cows, and we milked cows here. Up until 10 years ago, when my wife thought I was too old for milking cows, and we put the cows away and put on a suckler herd. But we have about 500 commercial sheep, um, about 60 pure texels, and we grow cereals, maybe about 70 acres of uh, spring barley. Mm -hmm. And that is just about enough to suffice to feed everything through the the winter. That feeding barley goes into a big green tower, and we feed that all through the winter to cows, calves, and to sheep mixed with the protein. Okay, okay, uh, and as I mentioned just now, you—I uh, think you started the Watch Now Flock in 1974, and you're also on a council member on the Texel Sheep Society. So you're you're right from the very beginning, uh, Jimmy. You've got you—you you know more about the, the beginning of the Texel than, than many people that are around today. Well, um, I think there's one, maybe one of the few originals that, that that's left. But um, in actual fact, it was quite an interesting start in the Texels because. Um, we had greyface ewes at that time, which is the border left across blackface, and uh, we had one that was a persistent prolapser. So I decided to take her away to our local abattoir, which is W.K. Jackson's abattoir at Symington at Bigger. And when I was there, um, Bill Jackson told me the story that he had followed a load of his chilled carcasses out to the Rungus Market in Paris to see why he was never getting the top greys and therefore not the top prices. So when he was out there, he discovered that all the top grades and top prices were going to Texel Cross Lambs. So he came back here and he went to Lana Market on the Monday and he met up with Ian Johnson and Jock McGregor mm-hmm. of Boghouse and Boghill Flocks. And he said to them, look, boys, what you need to do is get some Texel sheep in here to try and improve the carcass quality of the lambs that I'm buying off you at the market. So uh, they decided then they would set up the Texel Sheep Society. Mm. So when I went over to his abattoir with my Polax for you and I dumped it off, he came and he grabbed me and he says, Jimmy, you're the man. Put your name down on there and give me £20 and I'll sign you up for joining up with the Textile Sheep Society. So I did that and um, uh, that was uh, 1972. And in 1973, uh, my name was down for the first importation Mm -hmm. and um, we got three years into Dundee. 
and they came in and they were actually quarantined for two weeks and tested before they, they were released onto farm. Mm-hmm. And that was done by you getting a number. You then looked through the various lots of sheep and you chose them one to 50 or whatever it was. And when your number was pulled out of the hat, you then took your first choice or your second choice or mm-hmm. third choice, depending mm-hmm. what was left in the ballot. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got involved with Texas with three years of initial importation, £250 per you. Right. I didn't have a top. So Andy Barr, who was a council member mm-hmm. for this area, his dad topped these ewes, or he had a top that day, I took the top of my ewes for the first time round. Okay. And I mean, I've done quite a bit of research into this uh, myself and, and uh, hearing exactly what you say there. And as you said, with regards to tups, there weren't many. And I think the ones that were there were, were shared about. And and the original sheep that came in, I believe uh, that you did get in the ballot if you didn't want more or wanted to sell them. You could only sell them on to other council members who were involved so we weren't diluting the flocks too much. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, sir. Um, I think. If I remember correctly, the three prefixes that I got in were a Pelzer, a Deperny, and a Camus. And I always remember that um, both Jock and Ian Johnson said, oh, your Deperny you is the best you because she's a big, strong you with a big head and cocky lugs and a bright eye. But the Camus you, which was the smaller one, it had a tremendous back and a fantastic quarter and jigger, which was what the text was famous for. Mm -hmm. So, as it turned out, the camas from Bedwell and the Deperny one was just an average you as far as beating was concerned. Okay. And you would say you were right in the way that you looked at them. And, and of course, just to clarify to our listener, those early uh, Texel, of course, the Texel Island is in north of Holland. And originally it was intended to bring, <clears throat> to import sheep from Holland. But then they ran into all sorts of, of uh, problems with health regulations, a lot to do with made business. So the imports, origin, the first, original imports that came in to the UK anyway, came in through France. Isn't that right? And Pelzer is French, isn't it? That, that is right, yes. Um, but the unfortunate thing with the, the very first ones, as you say, were Dutch sheep. They had an extreme quarter and jigget on them, and uh, when they came in, they were tested and failed the Mayday test, and they had all to be returned or slaughtered, I'm not sure which. But um, that was a bit of a disaster and cost us a lot of money, mm-hmm. but hopefully, um, with uh, keeping our heads up and desperate to get the uh, Texels in, we managed to source in, in France, and, and they came into Dundee initially. There's some lovely stories around those imports, which I do have, have recorded, and we can run through a couple of them. And a man, of course, responsible or very much involved in this was a man called Sandy Grant, who was, I believe, yep. uh, an officer in the Northern Irish University, I think, before, before he caught up with, with uh, the likes of, of yourself and, uh, and uh, Jock McGregor, and uh, was very, very keen on the job, wasn't he? I think that's right. Well, Sandy came to Lanark as a college advisor. Okay. And um, he did come from Ireland, as you say. He was uh, working over there. And uh, he was very keen to get them in because I believe that the first Texels were brought into Southern Ireland mm-hmm. maybe about three years before we brought them into into Britain. Mm-hmm. I think they so were. I think that they had uh, they had a, a sort of a start, a head start over us. Um, uh, but I, I never saw those elements. No, I think I, I believe there was a couple of people involved in that group. Jim Limsey being one that had seen them in uh, in the ABRO centre in in uh, in Blaise Bank because they had some of them had been brought across and some of those had been used and were used, of course, for as original rams for the grading up scheme. But I think uh, some of those were Dutch origins, and I believe they did have a little bit of issues with uh, with Maida Visner over there in Ireland at that time. 
when they came in. Yeah, that, that's your light. That's your light, Andy. Um, and uh, Arbro were uh, great at doing figure testing, growth face, and all those things. But uh, as Jock McGregor always said, he said, your eye tells you whether it's a good one or a bad one, not a figure. <laughs> I think you've got to start that way around. And, and hey, we, we could get into a long discussion about um, figures versus eyes to this day. There's a discussion yeah. that still rages on. And um, and rightly so. I think there's a place for, for both sides of it. And Jimmy, I mentioned the, the grading up scheme. Of course, that was something else. That Using these rams that we were producing, or you were producing, uh, half breads and then keeping the females and then running those into uh, three quarters and then and then eventually up to to I think they had to be ninety percent so it's six generations before eventually those those became pure so it was a long time but there was a market for a lot of those early crossbred uh, grading up use wasn't there? No, that, that's exactly right and and we were quite fortunate in that um, we set up a classification scheme as we called it mm-hmm. in the society and I was involved in that in the early years. Late Henry Griffiths was the classifier, okay. and Stephen Williams, down in Wales. Mm-hmm. And um, the various parts of the textile were divided into points. So there was points for the head, the shoulders, the back, the quarter and jigget, the feet and legs, and the wool. Mm-hmm. And I always remember it was very interesting when people uh, looked at the scoring system that 25 of the 100 points were awarded to the quarter and jigger. Yeah, I've got that right in front of me. the most important mm. part, mm. yeah. So I, um, I think I think the classification scheme did us a whole lot of good, and people um, chose their original breed to cross with the Dexel on the sort of uh, um, growth and the skin and the style of the Dexel. So we had a lot of half-bred uh, sheep that produced Dexel cross lambs and graded up, uh, rather than black faces, uh, th- just to get the carcass. Right. I, th- I think that was actually a good a, a good thing, wasn't it? That everybody had the choice of what they were going to use, so they would be chiviots and, as you said, border lesters and 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 blackies and all sorts of different sheep all put into the mix there to see which one uh, one graded up the best. Exactly uh, right, and I remember at that time too that Ian Johnson of Boghouse, um, he was crossing the text with the the black faces, mm-hmm. and he couldn't believe the difference in the. Texel cross blackface progeny compared with the border Leicester cross blackface progeny okay. when they were hung up in, in the market. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the big thing about the Texel coming in is that they were brought in for the right reasons to improve the carcass of the lambs that were sired by a Texel. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a society that's led from that side rather than from the other side, then I think we must or we should end up with the right commodity. Sure, and as you said, by emphasizing 25% of the points onto the quarters and jiggers, you took that forward, and of course they had to be, I think the sheep were desired to be VG, which was between 80 and 90 points um, before they would you would allow them in. So it was quite quite strict ruling to, to allow them to get a get a pedigree certificate, even when they got to their to their full, um, or to their sixth generation status. Yeah, the 15th, 16th was the, the crucial time and, and age and stage, and um, a lot of people were very disappointed when they failed to, to meet the grade. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it said a lot for the society to stand firm and make sure that the right sheep were coming into the breed as graded up pures. And, and what percentage would there be? I mean, if we look, we, obviously we can't find that from now, but I mean, there, there was obviously, as, as textile breeders will know, and maybe some don't, but they, the, the, the ones that were imported were 
pure imports and they had the letters PI after them. And if they were bred from a grading up sheep, they, they didn't have that letter. And, and for a while, it was quite a snobbery about whether you got a PI or not in front of them before they eventually dropped it. But they would be originally half the sheep would be would be read from, from grading up, uh, Jimmy, or a quarter of them. What sort of percentage would, would, would have come into the oh, I, I think we'd be, we'd be heading for half of them, to be honest, um, because um, a lot of people jumped in the bandwagon to get a text or talk to put over whatever use they had on their own farms mm-hmm. and graded up from there. It was a long process, and as you know, 50% of the lambs born are males, so they're not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of the ones that you keep are either not going to breed or they're not going to be suitable by the time they produce lambs. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to get the, the, the numbers up. And um, there was, I remember going to Banbury Sale, and uh, it was a pure sale with some grading up sheep as well. And the pure sheep, they were through the roof in price. They were all sort of a thousand to to five thousand pounds, and and that's way back in the, the late seventies. Yeah. And I remember looking from the ring up at the the ringside, there was people hanging on to rafters in order to see and bid for sheep that they wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. And it, it was quite an experience. And and when I come back home and told my dad what I got for the the, the, the rams and uh, and the uh, gimmers had sold, he, he thought, these people must be mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I remember um, chatting to Dai Clark a few weeks ago and him saying, I think the same with his dad, he went and bought a, a couple of gimmers and his mother went mad because, uh, um, <laughs> because of what they cost. But obviously... That cost came back uh, in, in tenfold. I think in his case, he said they sold their first ram for £800 and, and uh, paid for the two to use they've got in. And, of course, the prices then started to go forward. I'll just, just hang on to one more thing that was brought back, and, Jimmy, you being on council will have been privy to this or maybe in charge of this, was the fact they brought in a rule that said no dressing to be allowed. And I think fantastic rule that I think very few breeds uh, um, still live with to this day. And the fact there's no dressing allowed on Texel sheep means you've got to breed them and, yeah. and breed them right. And who was involved? Involved in making that that rule, Jimmy? Do you remember? Well, I was on the, the council when that rule was made, and it was quite interesting. There was two objections from notable, outstanding bidders and other. You can name and shame, Jimmy. Who, name and shame. <laughs> can I? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, one one was a uh, uh, the Youngs of Skellington Mains, another one was Bill Weir of Wheatrig, okay. and they were both Border Leicester people. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why they were against these rules. But the rules say they were made by a new breed society that had no history to follow. Mm-hmm. So they could make the rules and uh, make sure that they were adhered to. So the rules were no feeding, no colouring, and no dressing. And it's very hard to produce sheep um, without one, two, or even three of these. Mm. And I always remember one of the society sales, the early society sales, there was a big dispute over sheep that were darker skinned, they were browny in the, 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 the fleece, whereas others were white. And this was down to the type of ground that they were farmed of on. Course. Nothing to do with the man colouring them. So it, it led for a lot of interesting discussions regarding whether the sheep had been tampered with or not. Um, <laughs> but I think that the, the rules were good, and uh, I'm delighted to say today that there's still no dressing. I know there's feeding, and I know that there's colouring, but I'm delighted that there's no dressing in the Texels. 
Absolutely right. And, and uh, I'll mention a dirty word, the Beltex, which my father was slightly involved with. And originally when the Beltex were there, the, the, he was on the council and they tried to go with the no dressing rule. But uh, eventually the, the fat lamb boys, I think, would be the right um, terminology for them, uh, decided that dressing was needed. So that's discriminated between, a lot of discriminations between the two, obviously. But uh, no, the, 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 the Texels have always prided themselves that they've, and they've prosecuted a few people over the years, a few well-known people, if I remember, for, uh, for breaking that rule. That's exactly right, yep. Now, those people that uh, were thrown out of society, those people who seek their refused registration mm-hmm. because they had broken the rules, and I'm not going to name them. <laughs> no, fair enough. No, let's not go there. <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, Jimmy, moving on, I suppose I maybe should mention again for our listeners that the, the breed sort of came to a bit more of a head a few more years later when um, uh, Ian Johnson that we mentioned at Boghouse had a U called Boghouse Daffodil, she was named, and then she bred a top called Boghouse Ian, I've not got the dates in front of me, but uh, he went on and sold for thirteen thousand to the Macaros, and he, he put a backbone in a, in a lot of breeds. So that was it, it was wasn't long before they were hitting the straps, really, was it? Um, I always remember when the Texels came in, they they sort of um, slowly started to improve. People were interested, um, and then there was a dive. The those that had bought Texels that were strong in front and strong of the head. They found lambing difficulties, so the trade dropped away mm-hmm. and the popularity fell. But then, all of a sudden, when the abattoir lambs were getting a premium, yeah. the people then jumped in the bandwagon and said, we've got to get a text, we've got to get that kind of lamb to get that £1 or £2 premium on our, our fat lambs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took off after that. But um, no, uh, Bokers Ian was a, was a great tub, principally because of his skin and stretch. He was a long top, and when you stood behind him, the quarters and jiggets were the widest part of that sheep. You couldn't see the rib, you couldn't see the shoulder, right. because he ran from the back being the widest to the shoulder being the narrowest. And that was what the what sold him, because easy lambed, but bred the right shape for the, the meat trade. Of course, and he did do just that, didn't he, Boghouse? And he, I think Macero sold a son of his called Grogfoot Jungle Boy, and uh, he, that went to Alex Brown, of course, at Stonefield Hill, and, and between the Macero's and uh, Stonefield Hill, they uh, they battled that out in the fat stock show ring for, for many, many years, and that all went back to, to Boghouse Ian. Yep, um, it just shows you that if you keep your eye open and uh, get the right breeding all the way through, you will um, reap rewards at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, the great thing, too, is that the Texel is a low-cost sheep. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot of feeding compared to an awful lot of other breeds. Mm-hmm. And they can carry flesh naturally through the winter without being uh, pushed really, really hard. Okay. I know that's maybe not the case today because people are pushing them hard to have them big and strong for the sales. But put the Texel over a commercial flock and they will eat half the feeding of a Suffolk mm. or a Border Leicester, mm-hmm. the, the traditional breeds. Mm-hmm. Okay, there we go. That's a part of your political broadcast on behalf of the Texel sheep. But <laughs> quite, quite rightly so, Jimmy. You wouldn't have stuck with them for best part of 50 years if uh, if you didn't think they were a great sheep. And as you said, you still keep some pure Texels yourself just now? Y- yes, we do. Uh-huh. Um, no, I, I, the Texas have been a big part of my life. Uh, I've travelled all over the UK uh, judging. I've been to um, Europe judging uh, and, and uh, to Scandinavia as well. I've met a lot of very interesting people, seen a lot of great sheep, and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the time I've been involved. And uh, I would recommend anyone, no matter your age, if you're keen on something, get in and 
buy some and breed them and follow them all the way through. <laughs> travel the, the, the travel the world uh, and you you meet great people and you're always learning. You, you always learn from people that have been in it for longer than you. That's very true. And, and maybe we'll go on to it a little bit. You travel in a second there. I'm just going to step back a, a minute. You said you've done a lot of things. And of course, you became chairman of the Texel Society in their 21st year. They're coming of age, uh, Jimmy, and a very busy year it was, of course, in 1995. And uh, a year you were proud of, I would imagine. Absolutely, yep. Um, it's a great honour to be chairman of a breed, but when you look back today to 1995, um, we weren't the biggest society as far as uh, members, but we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have a lot of acclaim other than through Alec Brown showing at the, the Smithfield show and uh, the Carlisle sales, um, but uh, it's just kept on building and building and building, and principally because the people who were involved were all stocksmen and women. They knew what they were looking for, and they bred it, and they showed it, and sold it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were the ones that have made the society. So now, highly honoured to have been the chairman of society. Lots of problems when you're chairman. Every chairman will tell you that. Mm-hmm. But that's part and parcel of the job. And so long as you stand by the rules, you will always come out the other end uh, happier and hopefully the society better. A couple couple of things that you did uh, amongst that. One was that you commissioned a book by uh, Sandy Grant that we mentioned earlier on, who wrote the first 21 years, which is available through the Texel Society if anybody wants to pick up a copy, which is is, is covered, which I've read, which is uh, I've covered some of the ground that, that you've chatted through there. And uh, that, that was that was a great idea to get that uh, that down on paper. And now we're now looking at um, when the 50-year celebration comes up there, we're looking at putting a new book out there, which will cover the next 50 years, which is something I'm involved in. But that was a great... A great idea to put that out, uh, Jimmy. It definitely was. Um, no matter what you do, you've got to write it down. Mm-hmm. Because as we all know, uh, a lot of the original readers are no longer with us and we can't go back to them to find out what happened and why it happened and so on. So you must write things down, recording dates and people involved and what the reason was for doing it. And uh, you can always go back and read and hopefully help you to take the breed that other step forward. Sure. So, um, no, no, you, you must keep a history. That's one of the reasons why I started the Top Lines and Tales podcast, which has been super successful because of that, where we're talking to some older breeders who have that information. And, and uh, yeah, we've lost a, a, a great stalwart in the Angus breed this week, as you'll probably know, in, in um, Willie McLaren. And, and uh, thankfully, I spoke to him a few years ago and got a lot of that information down. And, and again, he's written a lot of that down. And uh, no, it, it, it's highly necessary, you're right, to, to record this history. And I couldn't emphasize it enough myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, but uh, one one character I don't know if you have ever uh, interviewed him or not is uh, Robbie Mulligan, uh-huh. who was a Border Leicester breeder, and he got into Texels. He was involved in the uh, Blue Domains as well, and I think Rouge at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, I always remember speaking to Robbie, and Robbie had a great way of just leaning back and telling you the story that helped him to get on the road with the Texels. Okay. And he always said, "When I'm going down the lines of sheep at the shows and the sales." I keep walking until I'm invited in. This is what you mean by that, Robbie. He says, when the sheep twinkles its eye and flashes its lug, I go in. If it doesn't do that, I walk on past. Wise words. He's a real character. Wise, well, all the Mulligan boys were characters, weren't they? And, uh, they were. Yeah, they were uh, but uh, yes, as you said, Robbie, been a fantastic, uh, fantastic man in and amongst the breed. And the other thing that I'm not sure if you did this or not, but somebody appointed Steve McLean as uh, as 
I think manager of, of the society rather than secretary. Would I be right? Was that was that in your year, uh, um, Jimmy? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That was in my year. At that time, um, Steve McCain, he had originally worked for Alec Brown at Stonefield Hill. That's right. And he was up in the north of Scotland. I think he was with the College of Department um, up there. Mm -hmm. And he applied for the job and he came down and we interviewed him at the head office in in Stoneley. And he was the man that got the job. And Stephen McLean was a a thought outside the box. He was a bit of a visionary. He could see how to make things uh, go forward. And as you know well today, he is heavily involved in the agricultural side of Marks and Spencers. Yeah. Well, um, great appointment that that was up until then you'd had the secretaries and no disrespect to Jean Barber and, and Helen Woodhouse beforehand but Steve came along as I said more of a, a CEO I suppose of, of the of the breed and, and, and took took it on full, full hand didn't he and, and let's be honest when, you, when you've got 2,000 members you need to have someone in the head office who can go to a meeting of a, a club or, or of a, an associateship uh, and stand up and present the case so that the people are thinking, well, this must be a good society because this man, he is presenting figures, he's presenting the, the vision of the, of, of the breed society um, in a very easily to, easy to understand uh, manner. Mm-hmm. So I know I think Steve did us a, a whole lot of good and, and he still is a, a Texel breeder today. Yes, he did, still, of course, he married into a, to a Texel flock himself, didn't he? And Steve, if you're listening, uh, hello and I uh, yeah, hope his life is still good for you. Um, and Jim, let's go to go into some of your own breeding a little bit. The, 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 what I will remember your, from, from your flock, I bred Texels for for fifteen years and more, and uh, was it was a you called Lady Madonna, and she really was a, a, a prima donna, wasn't she? By Parkhouse value, I'm right in thinking. Uh, some beasts that she won won you a lot. She did indeed. Uh, um, no, she she was a great you. She was uh, enormous. She just kept on growing, getting bigger and bigger. And she had this personality that when you went to the field, she would always get head up and look at you, lugs forward. And uh, she always walked with a leg at each corner. Very big you, very strong you. Always remember, uh, this is going back many, many years when she was at Peebles Show. And she won the championship in the Texels. And she went out into the interbreed. And I think some of you may well remember the late Jock Allen, the Frisian breeder and the Suffolk breeder. Yeah. He was judging the interbreed at the show. And my daughter was holding a Madonna in the ring and he, he came to her after going down the line of, of, of sheep and cattle and he said, um, you've got a great you there, Hen, but I'm a Frisian man and the Frisians getting the championship today. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about the same Jock Allen that went to become a Beltex breeder, about the same man? That's exactly right. The very same man, yeah, yes. Yeah, he was an oppo of my father's and a great character that he was too. But uh, but uh-huh. it wasn't just the people's show. I mean, she went on, I think, Madonna, which she won the royal show in, in, in was it 95? Was that the same year you were, you were chairman, Jimmy? Yes, yes, it was. Um, no, she was reserved. She was second in the day and followed the show all the way through. Uh, the hopes, the hopes. They, they won yeah. the, the, the yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, no, no, she'll get you bred, bred well. She bred ginger spice, and she went on and won a lot of shows. And I know, um, delighted with the the way she did, and uh, she put your name in the map. And um, I'm I'm going back again to seventy six, seventy seven, and that was the first show in Britain, and it was held at Les Mahego, yep. which isn't far from Se- me at all. Seventy eight, I think. Well, I've got seventy eight recorded. Was it seventy eight? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, seventy eight. And I, if I remember correctly, there was something like six or seven textiles in each of the classes. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Tom Laird was the judge. Mm-hmm, was, yep. Well done. Well remembered. Yep. And I'm trying to think, did I win that or not? 
I couldn't have been far away. I haven't found out who won that yet because that's something I've been researching this week in my look into the Texel breed, and I do know that uh, Tom Laird judged it. And of course, Les Mago show would be one of the strongest Texel shows in the country to this day, isn't it? It is indeed. In fact, we get a, a busload coming from Ireland just about every year yeah. to see all the, the sheep on display and see if which top has bred well, which hasn't bred so well. Mm-hmm. And um, we, the ringside will be three and four deep. And it takes, I think we start an hour earlier with the judging at List Mahego. <laughs> so it's finished at the same time as other breeds because there's so many texels. Yeah, yeah. Now, well over 100, aren't there? And, and Lady, Ma- uh, Lady Madonna, as I said, I think you, 10 championships did she did she haul in uh, somewhere around about there? I think you'd be right there. I haven't counted them up, but no, she did us a whole lot of good. Um, I, I remember an Irish beater coming here, and uh, we've got a picture of through, her through in the, in the room there. And uh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit here and look at this picture. <laughs> and he, he never said anything for five minutes. Really? <laughs> No, she was a girl, great beast. I've seen photographs in, in, in the journals of her, and I think somewhere underneath it, it said that she'd won uh, 10 championships. And also, Jimmy, you sold an embryo from her for £2,000. Would that be right? That'd be a record. That was a record at the time, yes. Uh-huh. But um, the great thing was that when you've got something that is appealing and uh, leaves a lot of correct progeny, we flushed her and we got five five eggs out of her and sold one of them for £2,000, other than ginger spice. And I think that uh, we kept two of the other three. One they did as a disservice of kicking the bucket and it was looking tremendous, but sheep do that. <laughs> um, but the, the, the other two uh, bred extremely well in the flock. So no, no, uh, a great asset and a great start mm-hmm. um, in the flock. And she was by a top called Parkhouse Value, who was also the sire, of course, of Craighead Yankee of the £27,000. Um, who owned Parkhouse Value? I, I, I'm a bit discrepancy. Who did, did you have him? Nope. I think it would be the bars that, um, I, my, sorry, it would be. It, Parkhouse would own them. They, because I took my sheep there to get, to, to get served when I didn't have a top early on. Okay. So Craighead would have done, done the same then? Okay, that's, this is more... He would have done the same because, you know, they're, they're all, all in the locality. You know, you've, you've got the Colin Craighead, you've got the Clarks of Gangower, you've got um, John um, Jackson of the boat mm-hmm. and myself. Mm-hmm. All, all a nice wee nest round about Lanark. Yeah, certainly Lanark is the home of the Texel. I think there'll be more, te- well, one time be more Texels in Lanark than the rest of the country put together because it's where, where, the, where, where the breed started. Would that be right? Uh, that would be right. It was where they started in the Lanark market. And you know, one of the most pleasing things today is when you go into the market with your prime stock on a Monday to be sold mm-hmm. and you look through the pens and at the moment there's something like 5,000 Sheep there on a Monday. Okay. Um, the vast majority are white-faced, mm-hmm. Texel-sired. Okay. And it used to be, when I was a boy, they were all brown-faced, mm-hmm. Suffolk-sired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, big, big change. Sure, sure, definitely a change. Uh, and I think the membership, you said, wasn't that much, but I think the membership in the 21st year was somewhere around 2,500. So, uh, it, it maybe wasn't the biggest breed in the country, but certainly was becoming that way. And, of course, that's that's where it... That's where it is now, isn't it? You'd have more members than any other society of anything, I think, in, in the UK. Absolutely right. Well ahead of any other bid. And um, we've now got, as you know, there's clubs all throughout the UK and they all have their own local sales. Then you've got your national sales. You've got your one down in Wales and uh, in England. You've got your Carlisle. You've got your uh, Lanark sale. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's one up in Aberdeen, one in Hundley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these sales are, are, are buoyant. Um but, you know, the one that always uh, sets up be talking is uh, the Lanark sale, and then you get these prices that are uh, in a dream world. Yeah. Uh, way up in the hundreds of thousands, and, and uh, people saying, why would you pay that for a tub? But 
if you sit down and do the sums, if you're able to flush use to this ram, if you're able to sell semen from this ram, mm. um, and your progeny and lamb, uh, then lamb sales could be an extra thousand added on because of the, the ram. Uh, you know, you can, if you divide it over two or three breeders, mm-hmm. you can make it pay. Yeah. But um, it's too big a sum for me. I can't, I can't cope with that. <laughs> you weren't quite that close, Jimmy, but you did sell it up called Jimmy's Pride a little bit later, of course, for, for in 2007, I think, for 22,000. Would that about be your tops? That's a good trade. No, 40,000 was the top. It was the same time, and it was one that was uh, sold to John Forsyth at Glenside. Okay. And it was 40,000. The 25,000 one was bought by Castle Cairn and Kibble. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was Jimmy's pride, and he was a real cracker. He had a, an outlook that uh, he could see the other side of Tinto. Really? <laughs> he was a uh, bright, big-eyed, big-lugged, um, great skin. You know, the, the skin showed up every muscle he had in his body. He wasn't very big, mm-hmm. because we don't feed them that hard, but he certainly he, he looked well and he bred well. Mm-hmm. You, you, I would say you're a man that would be an eye for a good female, Jimmy, and I don't mean that in the derogatory sense of it at all, But uh, and, and you'd be breeding tops that would breed females as well, I, I guess. What was the name of the £40,000 top, Jimmy, just for the record? Watch, watch now, Lanark Cracker. Lanark Cracker, so that's... I, I always remember um, that wasn't the name we had in them, but um, Patsy from the Scottish Farmer mm-hmm. uh, said, you can't use that name because somebody else has used it. So uh, I think she came up with the idea of Lanark Cracker. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. It obviously was a Lanark cracker, and that'd be top top trade that year, um, Jimmy. Yes, top to sell that year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. And uh, delighted, absolutely delighted. Something to be proud of, and selling it to a good home, of course, to to um, Glenside. And you met Glenside, uh, absolutely. Right. I, I, I'm going to step back a year or two earlier. I th- uh, you bought a, a top called Irish Hill Yankee, and he'd be probably one of the first sheep to come out of. Would he come out of Southern Ireland, uh, Yankee? No, Irish Hill Yankee was out of the north. Okay. But uh, if you go back further, um, one of the tops that made a mark on us was Cornerstone Isaac. Gonna... Uh, and um, if you remember the year of foot and mouth, mm-hmm. the, everybody was um, curtailed in movements and going to sales. And I remember Tiger decided to have a holiday in Ireland. So we um, went off and I drove and we went round uh, the south and then up into the north. And David Simpson, who had the Cornerstone flock, and I had sold him some of the females, which were the base of his flock. And he he didn't have a lot of ground, David. And I always remember um, going into a field, David took us into a field, and there wasn't a lot of grass in it, and there was a big tree. (laughs) And when we walked down the field, this little lamb keeked round behind the tree. (laughs) And we wondered what the lamb was, because it was very, very cocky, very bright. (laughs) And this was Isaac. So I asked uh, David if he would sell it. And at that time, you had to have the genotypes one, if possible. Okay. So I said to David, I'm interested if he's a one. So David got him tested and he came back a one. So we got him over to this side of the water. Um, Brian um, got him down to serve some of his ewes. And in actual fact, Brian McTaggart topped Carlisle but the son of Cornerstone Isaac. I do remember Brian mentioning him before, and I wasn't quite sure who owned him. So did you and Brian own him between you? No, I, I owned him um, because uh, we waited some time after we had seen him to wait on the result of the genotype. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, once the genotype was in, I, I, I um, paid David. Okay. Okay, that clears him up. And, and as you said, Group 1, obviously, and back then they were wanted. And I've got, I think in the record books, I remember looking him up, he bred over a 1,000 lambs. 
He would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was extremely popular. Um, but then there was a kind of alarm. Now um, I'm going back to the Highland show now, and um, I think it was Jimmy's Pride. Mm-hmm. We were showing him at the Highland, and I remember I think my daughter was was holding him, and uh, I was um, at the side of the ring, and this gentleman I, th- I think we stood about eighth or tenth, I'm not sure, in in the, the Ram Lamb lineup, mm. and this prominent bidder who should remain nameless came up to me and he said, which end is he starting at here? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, it was a great uh, accolade to be told that. <laughs> we'll go into your other exploits at the Highland Show in a minute, but just covering some more of your sheep there, you had a top called Iron Man, I think. Did you keep him yourself? He bred a lot of sheep for you. Oh, Iron Man was an absolute star, but he was a three, oh. genotype three. Okay. And that was what absolutely floored me because Iron Man was one of the best tops I've ever bred. Right. He bred a lot of tremendous sheep, but he was a three in genotype. Mm-hmm. So we had to curtail his use. But honestly, an outstanding sheep of any breed because of his confirmation and, uh, and correctness. It was a huge disappointment, wasn't it? Of course, when the genotyping came along there, we all had to... A lot of the baby went out with the bathwater in, 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 uh, in, with a lot of the threes going away that was with some of the best sheep, weren't they? And... I sold it up in Lanark, for, it was a one for two and a half thousand, and to be honest, he was nowhere near the best sheep I'd bred, but at the time, he was a, he was a one, and that's what was wanted, wasn't it? It was a, a difficult time for the breed. It was, it was, and I felt an awful lot of good bloodlines were lost because of that, but that was progress, we had to go with the demand. And still do, and of course, it's now rearing its head uh, um, again, isn't it? Everything to get into Ireland has to be a genotype one, and I suppose there are a lot more ones now in the industry, aren't there? Yes, Right, the choice is greater now, so um, hopefully there'll be something uh, good. But then I think you'll find uh, that the Irish may not be coming over here in numbers to sell or even to buy. They may try and uh, buy within themselves over in Ireland, north and south. So I think it may affect trade both sides of the water. Yeah, yeah, possibly so. Possibly so, and it is difficult if they bring them over and they don't get them sold, they can't get them back, and it's it's uh, it's, it's quite a stushy. Um, but I will talk about the export trade, Jimmy, because that's something that uh, that you did get involved in. I think shipments going here, there, and everywhere at one time, and and people would come to you for for females. Where have you where have you exported sheep to from uh, from yourself? Right. Um, well, uh, the live exports have been to um, Switzerland, Germany, and Sweden, and we have sent semen across to America, and um, we were quite lucky that uh, the Swiss were very enthusiastic early on and they came over to the Highland Show and they contacted me to see if I could get them entry tickets, car parking tickets and accommodation uh, at the show. And uh, we did that and then they would do, they would see the judging at the Highland. Um, We would entertain them there in the International Lounge and then they would go off and visit beaters round about the sort of Edinburgh area. And um, they came over all five or six years in, in a row and they, they took a lot of sheep, Carnwell, um, Kutteranlers, uh, Garngower. They would all send sheep over over to Switzerland. Okay. And then we were fortunate enough all to go over there and uh, see their national show. Um, we had an international judging panel, of which I was one. I knew you judged overseas, um, so that's where you so you judged in Switzerland, now. Yes, I didn't have any Swiss language. <laughs> There was a German judge, a French judge, a Swiss judge, and I was a British judge. <laughs> and uh, 
we, we, it was very hard to communicate as to which one we all liked the best when <laughs> uh, we all spoke different languages. <laughs> so it was very much a point. <laughs> well, they say a good sheep's never a bad colour, and it's obviously never a bad nationality either, because I'm sure you can agree, uh, you can all agree on that when you see the right one, or at least hopefully so. I suppose they have a slightly different idea of, of, of a sheep than maybe you do. Uh, no, no, no. I would say that they've got pretty much the same idea. And the interesting thing too, uh, Andy, is that the sheep in Switzerland, the commercial sheep in Switzerland at that time, for double the price of the, the prime lambs in this country. Oh, right. okay. So they were able to, to pay quite a bit more knowing that the value of the end product was uh, much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But they, they were exporting into the German market a lot. Right, okay. And and for Switzerland, we all think the Alps. I mean, we, are we talking sheep up on the hill here? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, one of the lads who had a flock of sheep, and it was a hill that was as steep as, as a 1 in 10 rise, <laughs> And um, we went to see the, the sheep and he brought them all off the hill into a shed. So we went through them all in the shed. We went away to visit other beaters. And that night we got a phone call to say there had been a storm and a boulder up above that shed on the hill had rolled down and demolished the shed. Oh, no. So we were lucky we got out. <laughs> were the sheep still in it? <laughs> no, no, I think the sheep had gone out by that time. Oh, well. But uh, the shed that we were in was actually... <laughs> Running hazards of hill farming, eh? that takes it to a real extreme, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but you know, the, the scenery, fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. Now, you're driving through a, a valley and hills rising away on both sides, and uh, you hear the cows with the cow bells wandering about, and it, it just was a spectacular. Mag- really nice. Magical place, magical place. And you talk about yeah. judging, Jimmy, you'd have judged in a lot of other places as well. Um, pretty much across the country, you've been in demand as a Texel judge and an interbreed judge, I think. Yep, um, been in all parts of the UK and um, I'm going down to Cornwall in a matter of three weeks' time for the Royal Cornwall show, which I was asked to judge about three years ago because of COVID <laughs> and everything else. Uh-huh. It's all been postponed. Um, the One place I was asked to judge was in Sweden mm-hmm. and uh, over there um, I was asked to give reasons. Right. So I spoke very, very slowly <laughs> so they could understand why I was doing what I was doing. <laughs> And uh, there was a man uh, standing not far from me, and he would translate my language into into Swedish. Okay. So sometimes I feel a bit embarrassed <laughs> that here we are going across into Europe and, and Scandinavia, and they speak English, but we don't speak any <laughs> of their languages. And, and I feel as if I'm a, a bit of a letdown. Yes, yeah, I can see that. But I mean, you couldn't just speak all the all the European languages. You have picked two of the more obscure ones there, with Swedish and, and Swiss, to be fair. But uh... Swiss, I know. <laughs> And, um, of course, in a few weeks' time as well is the, the Highland Show. And uh, you, you've you been chairman of the Highland Show. I'm not sure. You, are you still in the chair at the Highland these days, Jimmy, or is that you finished? No, I'm finished. Um, I have a policy, and no matter what committee I'm on, that when I finish my job in the chair, I do one year to help the incoming chairman, and I disappear. Okay. Because I think there's nothing worse than an old guy sitting on there when there's an opportunity for a young person to come in with new ideas and take the whole thing forward. So I've been off for two years. I was awful lucky, Andy, in that I had two really good years in the chair with good weather, record attendances. Um, everything was going right. And then poor Bill Gray, the man that followed me, has been faced with the COVID problems and then the showcase last year. But fingers crossed, you know, 
get a good show this year. Mm-hmm. The showcase you were at, Jimmy, because I know you were you were alongside me in the commentary box at one stage. But I mean, the showcase was a was a great event, a great idea, or well, great job of pulling that rabbit out of the hat at the last minute, wasn't it? And I think it went well, and and maybe it did some good for for, for the future of the show. I think it did because we had televisions uh, connected in to watch the judging of all the different parts of the show. And that was um, played out throughout, I think, uh, did somebody say there were 350 um, people had uh, keyed in to watch the judgings and they were in, was it 15 different countries? Yeah, 350,000, yes, 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 they were all all across the world and I think there's some of that going on this year. I'm again involved in the commentary and uh, watch this space, I'll let you know when I know myself just how that's going to go, but there will be some more televised uh, footage coming out from the Highland again this year as a result of that, so that's, that's good news. Well, that, that's brilliant. And if, if, if I've sown the seed in, in other countries to key in to watch the judging, I think that's a great start for further exports. Yeah. Yes, true. True, true. And, of course, the, the, today, as you all know, is the Balmoral Show in, in Ireland, and I think there might be some footage of that coming out there later on today that I'll probably be getting glued to. And, and of course, the front runners of that have been the Royal Welsh Show, who have done a fantastic job over the years of televising the entire event that uh, we can all tune into S4C and have a look at. And I, it's quite interesting, Andy, I, I campaigned long and hard to get the TV company that they covered the Royal Welsh to come to the Royal Highland, and uh, I, I just didn't manage to get them to come. Um, but uh, now that we've done the showcase, I think the seed's sown and uh, we're heading in the right direction. Good. Good. And we mentioned commentary. Uh, you you commentate more than I do. I didn't think anybody spoke more than me, but Jimmy, you probably do. I think you do dinner speaking and, and <laughs> commentating and all sorts of quite a few shows, don't you? And uh, it's been something you've you've been at for quite a while. Well, in actual fact, the, the first show I ever commentated that was Nielsen Show at um, Nielsen Village in uh, Barhead, south side of Glasgow. And it was on Saturday. Okay. And I was commentating there and it was absolutely mobbed. There'd be 10,000 people on the show field, which is not a big show field, and the Nielsen Show Committee have done catering for the general public and educating them. Mm. So there's a, a massive education dome. There's all the entertainments of um, a dog show with about 250 dogs. We only had about 50 cattle and sheep at the show, but that was purely for more or less demonstrations. So the public knew what the different breeds were for. So I, I would be in the mic and I'd be telling them that the, the Holstein cow came in and, and it was a milk producer and the Jersey cow had a high quality milk and that the Simmental came in the, initially from Europe in the 70s and all the different breeds and their histories and what they were there for. And um, there must have been 10,000 people around that ring and it was great to see. And I've been doing that one for 30 years. And I told them last, uh, you know, when COVID came in, I said, Look, get somebody else. I'm, I'm too old, but they asked me back again, and uh, I've got Les Mahego in a matter of two, three weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it, it's great to tell the public what's happening and why it's happening. Jimmy, you're such a pleasure to listen to on the mic as well. I've listened to you myself. And, uh, and but you, you, as you say, with a show like that at Neilston, it is um, it, it's brilliant. That, that I mean, that's what the agricultural shows are about really isn't it for all we go there and want to win prizes and and, and come home with it with a bit of hardware and a few rosettes it's about getting the public out into the country and showing them where the food comes from and showing them you know that, that we treat the animals kindly and 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 you know, these these are farmers and they're ordinary people they're not the sort of the the, the enemy and it, it, it's a public relations thing isn't it and all shows need to need to to run down that route Absolutely right. Public relations and education. And uh, at Nielsen Joe, that's where I got my first education in uh, describing what I was saying better. Because um, I, during the parade, 
I told them that the champion of champions at the show was a limousine heifer and had beaten off another 10 in the class to come out on top and beaten all the other breed champions as well. And this uh, lady at the side who was surrounded by about 20 kids, she said, Oi, you with the mic, what's a heifer? <laughs> and that, that, that brought it home to me. Yeah. I'm using language like heifer, yeah. bullock, shearling, mm. uh, gimmer, and I don't realise that I didn't realise that that was something the public didn't know about. So you've got to explain why you're describing an animal as such, what the animal is, and uh, what the purpose of it is. And you get people coming after us and say that was great. I didn't realise that the Jersey cow had X amount of milk and high butter fats and all this. And it's just great to hear the feedback um, because you've you've sown some seed in their minds and they're taking that information away and they're going to be more aware of what the farmer is doing for the food industry. Brilliant, brilliant. And, of course, there's a, there's a little bit of a help nowadays on the TV. Every third programme you turn on, uh, there's, there's farming this and farmer Kevin driving his whatever tractor and uh, Emma Gray with the sheepdogs and what have you. So they are getting a lot of education from all sides, and that, that, that can only be good for the industry, can't it? And, Jimmy, you've been involved with education and a lot of youngsters as well, but uh, one of the main things and the great things, I think, about the Highland Show is the Royal Highland Educational Trust, and I think you have an involvement in that. Yes, I'm a past chairman and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed all connection with the, with children, um, whatever the ages, and they throw questions at you like snowballs. They are non-stop and you've got to be on the ball to be giving them the right answers. And, and funny enough, um, tomorrow afternoon I'm going to a careers day at a bigger high school where we are presenting all aspects of agriculture and the different job opportunities that the industry affords that people just don't know about. So we've got aquaculture, we've got horticulture, we've got engineering, we have um, fruit trimming, we have sheep shearing. You know, there's so many things that people don't know about in agriculture. And uh, hopefully tomorrow we'll maybe get some candidates who want to come and help on the farm or work with livestock and just uh, get the, the fulfilment of being out in the fresh air and producing something that is pleasing to look at. Oh, and they'll keep you on your toes as well, I'd imagine, checking the questions at you, Jimmy, but uh, there'll be nobody better at answering them than, uh, than you do. And and you do, you've done a lot, of course, with the NSA as well, I mean, the National Sheep Association and the young handlers, uh, the young sheep handlers anyway. No, no, um, I remember one year at the Highland Show and the uh, um, young handlers was on the Sunday, as it always is, uh, in the morning, and um, this girl came to me and said, that uh, I was promised that I would have a sheep to show in the young handlers, but the person that um, has the sheep said it's not well and I can't show it. I said, well, just you go and take one of mine and I sent Carlan off to give her a hand to get this uh, top arm out and get it uh, washed up and, and brought it into the ring. And, you know, that girl, Carlan obviously told her what to do in making it stand up, head up, turn its head to the judge, all the different aspects of showing it to its best advantage. And uh, the girl got third prize, and she was over the moon. And to this day, she comes and thanks me for giving her that opportunity yeah. because she's now um, studying uh, veterinary. She's uh, she's going to be a vet, mm-hmm. and uh, she said that was my beginning. So nice to see that. Absolutely brilliant. Those are the rewards that we all look for, aren't they? And with regards to handling sheep, you can give me some lessons as well. Maybe some to my to my wife. I've got a few sheep going to the Highland, and she's never shown a sheep in her life. So I'm maybe coming to you to, to get you to right. get you to give her. And tell her what to do. Right, we'll do that. She doesn't listen to yep. me, Jimmy. 
<laughs> and and the of awards, you won the the NSA Silver Salver in in 2012, recognition of, of of your work in and amongst the NSA, not just the Texel breed, should I say? You, your recognition for for sheep breeding across across the globe, or certainly across the spectrum. Yeah, that's right. That was in the police house, and it was Prince Charles that presented it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned earlier on about the MBE. Yes. I'll, I'll never forget um, when I got the. The salver from Prince Charles, he asked how the lambing had gone, and I told him, and he said, um, have you got any winners this year? So he obviously did his research, okay. but anyway, when I, when I went down to, to Buckingham Palace to get the MBE, he was presenting it as well. And he said, and how, how are your sheep doing? Now, how he remembered me from then uh-huh. till being down at Buckingham Palace, I do not know, but uh, I took my hat off to him. I thought, just this man does his research, he doesn't just turn up. No, that's great. It's great to be recognised. As you said, the royalty do take a lot of interest in 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 the, the the agricultural world. And I always remember the Queen Mother being at Smithfield Show every year, and she she remembered a lot of things from year to year, and, and a lot of people. Tremendous, tremendous. No, oh, great family. Well, Jimmy, I know you do a lot of after dinner speaking there, and uh, the floor's yours if you don't fancy firing up a story of anybody else that you know. <laughs> no, some of the stories I tell are not debatable. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one day there's one that we tell the I tell quite a few people about and that is that we had a school party uh, arrived here to have a farm visit from Easter House in Glasgow. Now Easter House in Glasgow is not maybe the most affluent part of the the, the, the city, but um I took them round the past the garden where the daffodils were blooming, I took them round the corner at the bottom where the the trees and the birds were singing in the trees to the field where the ewes were with the lambs gambling in the field. And I said to the children, now children, I want you to tell me what's the first sign of spring? There was a silence. Then this wee boy put his hand up and said, please farmer, it's the Scottish Cup final. <laughs> so so that, that taught me that we've an awful lot to teach the <laughs> urban population about sure. as far as farming. <laughs> True, but I think... As you said, nowadays, with, with, with the likes of yourself and a lot of other people getting involved as well, I think there's a lot more children that realise milk just doesn't come from a bottle and they do see, they are seeing a bit more bit more of agriculture across the board. And let's hope that with few of those come back into, into the industry that we know and love. Here, here. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you to one of the, the great characters in, in livestock. Well, listen, Andy, I thank you very much indeed. I've thoroughly enjoyed my conversation. It's brought back a lot of memories and things that we did way back in those years. And I look forward to seeing you and hopefully all the people to listen to your podcast at the Highland Show. And let's hope we have four cracking good days. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episodes of Top Lines and Tales. If you are visiting the Scott Sheep event uh, next week, why not drop in to see our sponsors Harbro on their trade stand uh, to discuss all your requirements? Or speak to the hosts of Scott Sheep, Robert and Hazel McNee, who are good Harbro customers using a variety of their products. Visit their website harbro.co.uk or on social media where you can find your most convenient point of contact. And while you're on social media, don't forget to visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find information to back up this and other episodes as well as news, photos and chat about the livestock industry in general.